The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. My One of my professors told me one of the clients they represented was being strapped into the chair for lethal injection. And he looked up at his executioner and said, I don't blame you for doing this. Don't, don't blame yourself. It's okay. And the guy said, thank you. The Burns body continued today. This is the third effort for the national crew led by a North Carolina missing persons expert, and the hope remains as strong as ever. The Marshall student Samantha Burns went missing in 2002. Chad Fultz and Brandon Basham were convicted of killing Burns and a South Carolina woman named Alice Donovan, all after a multi-state crime spree. Chad Folks and Brandon Basham have both pleaded guilty to Samantha's abduction and murder and are now sitting on death row in Indiana. It never goes away. You never stop thinking, what if, maybe here, maybe there. It's just something that you always think about. This all started six years ago when Burns was kidnapped. One of her, the men charged with her death recently sent a map to the people organizing the search. So now family and friends are standing by and hoping for closure. Welcome back to Serial Spirits, the podcast. It's me, your host, Brendan Shea, and as always, joining me is the beautiful, lovely... Annie Weems. How's it going, Shea Babe? It is going fantastic, Annie. Today we have the second part of our story in the Samantha Burns case, and let's just dive right into this because it's pretty powerful. This is um, a difficult thing to talk about, but tonight's episode is number two in our series, Missing Samantha Burns, and maybe one of the most important interviews we have ever done. Tonight, you will hear our interview with former attorney Matt Rawlings. Matt was a budding law prodigy at Cornell University in 2002 with dreams of becoming a Manhattan prosecutor, but this all changed when he volunteered to take on the death penalty case that had ties to his hometown, the death penalty case of Chad Folks. During this interview, you will hear Matt detail his time spent with Chad researching the case, Chad's recounting of their crime spree and the murders of Samantha Burns and Alice Donovan, Chad's trial, and the time Matt spent searching for the remains of Samantha. Matt also reveals how this case not only changed him as an attorney, but altered the course of his life forever. This interview is raw, real, and emotional. 
Matt goes into details of the crimes that were never before released by news media, and we feel that if we edit any of this material, it would be to the detriment of what we are trying to relay with this podcast. Some details are disturbing, so listener discretion is advised. All right, guys. Thanks for coming back to this episode of Serial Spirits. In the... um, in the series that we have entitled Missing Samantha Burns. Tonight, we have a very special guest joining us. We are going to be talking with Mr. Matt Rawlings. Matt is very familiar with the Samantha Burns case because he was actually counsel for Chad Falks. Matt, thank you so much for joining us for Serial Spirits. My pleasure, guys. So, Matt, let us know how you became involved with the Samantha Burns case. How did this come to your attention? I was at uh, law school in upstate New York at Cornell University, and part of the curriculum there requires that law students take a clinic uh, where you actually get out of the classroom and do some kind of real-life you know, legal work. So there were a couple options, and one of them was the Capital Trial Clinic. So a couple of my professors, John Bloom, and Sherry Johnson, who are experienced uh, at that time more than 20 years in handling death penalty cases. They ran it, and I had both of them in class, respected both of them. I actually, at the time, wanted to be a prosecutor, and so I signed up for the Capital Trial Clinic because I thought it would be good experience for me, and um, somebody who, at that time, wanted to be a criminal prosecutor. So I signed up, and I went to the initial meeting, and they ran down the cases they had. They initially had me in another case uh, somewhere in the South. And when they ran down the um, facts of the Chad Falks case, which included Samantha Burns, um, I kind of raised my hand and I said, I kind of want to be on that case. And they said, why? I said, because the places you're describing is where I grew up. I grew up in Portsmouth, Ohio. Hmm. And, you know, they talked about Chad going from Kentucky to Indiana to Portsmouth to Huntington, uh, down to Conway, South Carolina. So I've been to all of those places. I, I think I'd be better served going there. And so they put me on the case. And within a few weeks, uh, they put me on a plane to Columbia, South Carolina. And I walked into a jail cell for the first time in my life and sat down with Chad Falks and listen to him for the next four or five hours or more tell his side of the story. And that's how I got involved. So give us your first impression of Chad Folks. You're sitting face-to-face with this 25-year-old man that they have said committed some absolutely heinous crimes. What was your first impression of him? I, I, he was really kind of shy and reserved at the time. He you know, kind of ha- had his... Um, he looked me in the eye, but he spoke very slowly. He spoke very carefully. Um, he wasn't guarded. He was very honest um, to the point where it kind of shocked me when I started asking him about his background and about the previous crimes that he had been convicted for, which mainly was petty theft. Um, He admitted all of it. And he admitted his role in this crime. He admitted that he was there. He admitted what he, and he told me everything that he saw. And, you know, I took copious notes. I listened to it. I'd already been over the file, but um, I sat there and I listened. And, and then I, I walked out of there thinking, 
you know, as I, I'm a preacher's kid, um, and as a preacher's kid, you know, you kind of grow up seeing both the best and worst of people. Um, and you kind of get a, a fairly good sense of whether people are feeding you BS or not. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of there thinking, he seems like he's telling the truth. And so then over the next really year and a half, I spent in the field investigating the case um, for the two lead attorneys going to Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio and West Virginia and South Carolina and, and uh, interviewing Chad's neighbors, um, uh, interviewing his classmates, interviewing his ex-girlfriends, interviewing uh, his parole officers, um, you know, and, and going through all of that and going from crime scene to crime scene and, and his story just checked out. And, you know, for me, I walked out of that jail thinking he seems like he's telling the truth, but at the same time, you know, I'm a guy who wants to be a prosecutor. I'm a guy who wants to put people like him in jail for, for life. Um, he's, you know, he's got to be lying. But as I began to do work the case, I began to believe, no, he's, I think he's telling the truth. Why do you feel like he was so open and honest with you? Do you think his intellect or lack thereof? I mean, we've, in doing the research for this story, we've read that, you know, Chad was of a below average IQ. Do you think that led into him being so honest with you? Yeah, I think that was part of it. I don't, I don't think that Chad is um, uh, crafty enough to explain away uh, all, every crime scene that we investigated. I just don't think he is able to do that. We had him tested several times because while we were facing trial, the Supreme Court had come down and with a ruling that said that anyone who is mentally challenged um, who has an IQ, uh, you know, below, I can't remember what it's like 75 or something like that, um, cannot be executed. And so we really were, you know, testing Chad, bringing in experts and then hoping that his IQ was below that. It wasn't, but it was only like three to four points above mentally challenged. It was, it was not high at all. Um, it was in the seventies, his IQ. And so, on top of that, we also found that uh, a neurologist found that he suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome, um, which essentially means he has a hole in his brain. So now, uh, you know, I'll talk about this later with the jury. There are a couple of things that came in that, that um, the jury took into consideration where they rejected that. But, yeah, I, I just don't think Chad's capable of that. And you know, from that first meeting over the next several years and until we got new counsel, Chad would call me about once a month um, from prison and talking to him. And he was just always brutally honest with me. Did you ever have the opportunity to meet Chad's parents? I've heard stories about them here from, you know, people who knew them in passing from local churches, but I was never able to confirm um, I was told at one point that his dad was a convicted child molester. Yeah, I don't know if that was the case at the time. I don't remember it. I never met with his father. I did meet with his mother. I spent uh, an evening questioning his uh, mother, who at that point had moved to Ohio. And so I questioned her. Um, she uh, she was very guarded. 
And you would expect her to be because, uh, you know, she realizes, I'm sure, that her son was part of this crazy, heinous crime. But at the same time, that's her son. And so you would expect her to, I guess, be guarded. Yeah, but it was, there was also this thing that we were trying to delve into his childhood. And I was asking her questions about Chad's childhood, stories that I had gotten from several neighbors. Um, and she just didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to talk about that the neighbors said that they were always drinking, always, day and night. Um, that the kids kind of were let to raise themselves, that they just kind of roamed around. Um, the kids all were thieves. Um, and according to the neighbors, they didn't really have a choice because there wasn't, there weren't three meals and, and good clothes given to them and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so she didn't want to talk about those things and she did not want to testify on her son's behalf either. She, she didn't want anything to do with it. So she just basically wanted to be left alone and she didn't want to be questioned about her own indiscretions, basically saying, you know, Chad may be like this because you drank the entire time that you were pregnant with him and forced him to be a, a thief to survive, basically. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. She she would not talk about it. And so, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to cast allegations at people. But when a you know, when you have prominent neurologists telling you, hey, this guy's got fetal alcohol syndrome, what other conclusion can you draw? Right. So during the course of your time with Chad, did he lay out the the days of this crime for you? Did he tell you exactly what happened? And did he lay out the details of the crime for you, basically? And if so, can you recount that for us as it came from Chad? Yeah, he did. Um, he was very honest about it. He, he had been picked up in Kentucky uh, for stealing credit cards. And so his kind of M.O. Uh, for a long time was that he would go into a Walmart was his place of choice. He would go into a Walmart and walk around. And he'd wait to see somebody who left their purse or wallet open and he would grab it and he would take it and he would take whatever cash he could get. And he would also use the credit cards. Um, and so he got picked up for that. and He got put into a jail in Kentucky. And unfortunately, his cellmate in this jail in Kentucky was Brandon Basham. Um, when you look at the criminal histories, when you look at the file, the criminal file for Brandon Basham and Chad Falls, um, Chad is convicted again and again of, of petty theft. Um, Brandon Basham had a history of violence. Um, Brandon Basham had a higher IQ. He had a fairly, a fairly good IQ. If I remember correctly, don't, you know, it's been years since I've had the case file, but it seems to me that his IQ was in the 120s. Um, but he also was on antipsychotic medication and had a history of violence. Brandon believed that he told him that we can get out of this jail and asked Chad to go along with it. So they escaped from this jail. Now, this is not the Shawshank Redemption. You know, mm -hmm. any one of us could escape from this jail. This is this. They walked away from this jail. Um, and so they walked away. They stole some clothes and uh, they went to a house. And Brandon basically told Chad, Chad, you know, let me do the talking. They knocked on a door, said their card broken down. Could they? use their phone. And this is, remember, this is back in the infancy of cell phones. 
Right. Uh, you know, if you remember the movie Scream, it was shocking that, you know, Billy had a cell phone, you know, because right. that, that era, nobody, most people didn't have a cell phone. So they knocked on the door, said, can I use your phone? And so the guy was nice enough to say yes. They got in there. Uh, Brandon pulled a weapon and, and said, give me your keys. Give me, you're going to drive us. And they carjacked the guy and they put the poor guy um, in the car, drove across the Ohio River into Indiana. And they stopped somewhere in Indiana. I can't remember where. Uh, they got out and they tied the guy to a tree. And uh, they were getting back in the car and Chad said, wait a minute. He went back because it was a cold night. And so Chad took one of those plastic uh, dog houses that you see outside of, you know, a lot of stores and took it and put it in front of the guy to shield him from the wind because it was a windy cold night. And uh, this is this is not Chad's story. This is the guy said this as well, that Chad right. came back and and right. and did this for him, got back in the car with Brandon. And so Chad had spent some time um, in, in jail, and one of his prison guards was a female prison guard who they'd started corresponding, and so, and she lived in Indiana, and so they went there. And so they went to visit her. She had a friend. The four of them took off and decided to go to Myrtle Beach and to try to hide and lay low. And so they go from Indiana through Ohio. They go through my hometown of Portsmouth. And then they go to Huntington. Um, Chad doesn't contact his family, as far as we know, in Huntington. He goes to a flea bag motel in uh, Sarita Canova, uh, which I've been to. I think it's called the Hollywood Hotel. The Hollywood uh, Hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he went there, and but they're out of money. And so... Chad and Brandon talk and they said, well, let's just, you know, we'll go out to the mall and we'll see if anybody's left the car unlocked and maybe there'll be some money in there. or Maybe somebody's left their wallet in there and we can get some cash. They go out to the Huntington Mall in Barbersville, West Virginia, and Brandon takes one side of the mall. Chad takes the other side of the mall. Brandon is going through Samantha Burns' car when Samantha Burns catches him. And Brandon, by this time, has a gun. He pulls the gun on Samantha and tells her to get in, has her drive around to the other side of the mall to pick up Chad. Um, Chad told me, he said, what's going on? And so Brandon said, you know, caught this girl, you know, we're going to go empty out her bank account and then we'll do with her what we did with the guy in Indiana. We'll just tie her up and, and we'll take off. And Chad's like, okay. And, and, you know, at this point, Brandon's got a gun. Chad doesn't. He gets in the car. They go to several ATMs. And at this point, Samantha's being very quiet. Chad said she didn't say much of anything at all. Um, she was in, at this point, the back seat with Brandon. Chad was up front driving because Chad knew the area. He grew up in Huntington. And they're going to ATM to ATM to get as much money as they can. Now, here's where there's a problem. Um, when Chad got to Portsmouth, uh, my hometown, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but they said they rolled up to the first person they saw walking on the sidewalk and said, where can we get meth? And the first person said, this house down the street. Right. So they bought meth. Um, and so they were on meth most of the time. 
And so Chad's memory is fuzzy. Um, you know, he, he remembers certain things, but other things he's really kind of vague on. Um, he said that after they emptied out the ATM, you know, Brandon asked, okay, we need to take her somewhere. So they take her, Chad described it as somewhere near a river with woods. He thought it was near a boat that was a restaurant and that they parked next to a dumpster. That's how he remembered it. Um, I found the best place that matched that description, um, but we were unable to find uh, Samantha Burns's body there. We, but we looked all over. We looked at every single place that we knew had a place where you could park a car, and there were woods. And he said that <clears throat> Brandon took Samantha out of the car uh, with some duct tape, and said that he was going to take Samantha and he was going to tie her up to a tree and he would be back. And then they would go get the girls that were back at the Hollywood Hotel. So Chad waited. Brandon and Samantha went off. And Brandon came back and said it was done. Though it was, according to Chad, he thought it was sometimes, sometime later. They took Samantha's car out off 64 later on, and they dumped it. This is after they went back to the Hollywood Hotel, picked up the girls, got their car, had them follow, told them they needed to get out, told them the story, dumped the car off, and then they took off for Myrtle Beach. They get to South Carolina, check into another fleet bag motel. They're still running low on money. Brandon's idea this time is, let's not go to a mall Let's break into someone's house. We can probably get more stuff to pawn that way. So they go to Conway, South Carolina, and they break into a house they, that they assume is empty. They get in there. They ransack it. They come out. One of the neighbors had seen this strange car, and these two guys go in, called the guy at his work. He comes down. This guy owns – this guy's got an armory. So he comes in, catches them. They get in their car. They're fleeing. They're literally like something out of a TV show. The guy, the homeowner, is chasing Chad and Brandon down the street, and they're exchanging gunfire in their automobiles, going back and forth. Brandon's firing. Chad is driving. They eventually lose the guy. They pull into a Walmart, and they ditch the car, and they're looking for another car. They're checking for unlocked cars, all that kind of stuff. And then they unfortunately find they Brandon comes upon a woman getting into a BMW, and that unfortunately ended up being another victim. So this is where they pick up Alice Donovan. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. She was coming out of Walmart, getting into her BMW, and Brandon was walking up to it at the time, pulls a gun on her, and puts her in. Chad gets in and drives. Alice Donovan and Brandon Basham are in the back seat. And they take off. They stop at a uh, gas station. And Brandon tells Chad, go in and get some duct tape. We'll do the same thing again. Chad goes in, gets the duct tape. They come back out. They start driving around. Now, Chad is now in unfamiliar territory. And in Huntington, West Virginia, he knew the lay of the land. He grew up there. In Conway, South Carolina, he has no idea where he is. He's driving 
He finds a dirt road. He pulls off into it. It's wooded. He pulls back there. They get there and they get out. And at this point, Chad says he, he stops the car, turns around and looks. And Brandon Basham is groping Alice Donovan. He tells Chad to get out of the car. Chad gets out of the car. Um, he says at that point, Brandon Basham sexually assaulted Alice Donovan. Um, at this point, when Chad is telling me this story, he's crying. He has his head down. He's not looking me in the eye for the first time since he walked in, and he's crying. He then says, Brandon Basham gets out of the car and says, your turn. And Chad says, no, I'm not doing that. And Brandon points the gun at him and says, yes, you are. I'm not in this alone. And then Chad went silent and started sobbing. And I said, Chad, did you do what I think you did? And for a good 30 seconds, there is nothing. And then finally, he kind of sadly nodded his head while he cried. He says that after that, Brandon took Alice Donovan into the woods. He sat there in the BMW and he waited on Brandon to get back. I asked him at that point, Chad, why didn't you just take off at that point? And he said, I should have. But he said, honestly, he said, I just didn't know what to think, which I think is his way with his intelligence of saying he was in shock. Right. And Brandon comes back, gets in the car. They take off. They go back to the hotel. Tell the girls that we're probably wanted. Things went bad. We're going to have to leave you here. Um, we're going to take the BMW. You've got your car. And they head out. And Chad does what Chad always does, which is head back towards West Virginia. They're driving to West Virginia at night from South Carolina. And at some point during the night, Chad said Brandon was playing with a couple things while they were driving. And he looked over. And he asked him what they were, and he said they belonged to Samantha Burns. And then after a few minutes of silence, Brandon said, you know I killed her, right? And Chad said at that point he knew, I've got to get away from this guy. What was it specifically that Brandon had that, that drew Chad's attention? Did, what, what did he take from Samantha, basically, that he, that had he kept? Yeah, he had something around his neck, like a ring or something around his neck. He had a necklace, and he had something dangling from it. He kept pulling it out of his shirt and playing with it. Um, and, and Chad hadn't noticed that before. Before that, he had said that Brandon was always playing with a gun. That even when they were in hotels in, 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 in Ohio, they had stopped at a hotel in Piketon, Ohio. He was just constantly playing with the gun. But now, all of a sudden, he was constantly pulling out this, his necklace and, and, and playing with this thing around his neck. And Chad hadn't remembered that before and asked him where he got it. A lot of that is very difficult to hear because sure. you talk about so many places that I'm so familiar with. You know, I live in Huntington. I grew up in this area. The restaurant that you talk about um, on the boat was a place that we frequented often during college. It was a <laughs> it was called Schooners. And actually, it still is there on the river. Um, it, it's no longer a restaurant. I don't think they do anything with it. But it's just, 
it's crazy to hear that that could have been Samantha's final resting place because in the years after she disappeared, I couldn't tell you how many times I was there. We were there with friends. Yeah. It was a place that we went frequently to listen to our friends' bands play and just set out on the river. And so to think that she could have been that close to all of us. Yeah. Well, I don't think she was. I'll get into that later. But I do think that's, in, in, in my opinion, it, just in my opinion, and, and now the problem again is his memory is fuzzy because of the drugs that he was on. But in my opinion... Um, she died there, unfortunately, but I don't think that's where her body was laid to rest. Um, so it's when they got back from South Carolina, they got to West Virginia, they stopped at, uh, a friend of Chad's and, and Brandon hooked up with this girl. And then Chad said the entire time he was thinking, how do I get away from this guy? Um, he did, Chad said, I didn't have a gun. He's got a gun. He was always wary, especially after he confessed that he had killed, uh, Samantha. I can't remember if he said that he killed both Samantha and Allison, but Alice Donovan, but obviously he did in my opinion. And so after that, you know, Chad said, we need to split up, you know, it, it's better. And, and Brandon said he wanted to go to Mexico. And Chad thought he could go home to his brothers in Indiana. Uh, Chad, again, um, not having a great intelligence, not ever thinking that, of course, the FBI would be watching his family's house. All of them, all, every relative he had, they were okay. watching. That never occurred to him. Um, and so Brandon said, well, take me to the Ashland uh, Mall in Ashland, Kentucky, and I'll call my family and then we'll wait for them to come pick me up. And then you can go your way and I'll go my way. And Chad said, okay. And so they go to the Ashland mall and Brandon was getting ready to get out of the car. Asked Chad if he was coming. He said, no, I'll stay here. And Brandon basically said, you know, don't you dare take off on me. I'll kill you too. And Chad said, you know, I'll be here. And he said, as soon as Brandon opened one of the glass doors to go in the Ashland mall, he gasped and took off. He never wanted to see him again. At that point, Brandon came, ran outside, saw him pull away, tried to carjack a car. Uh, the security guards at the mall saw what was happening. One ran after him. The other called the Ashland police. The Ashland police were close. They pulled in. Uh, they exchanged gunfire. Brandon ran across the road, tried to swim across the Ohio River in November. Which wow. Is yeah, bad idea. Yeah. Uh, they pulled him out without a struggle because he was suffering from hypothermia pretty quickly. And so they pulled Brandon in. And after a while, they began to question him. Brandon immediately pointed the finger at Chad. And played, you know, said he was innocent. You know, he he was just along for the ride. He had no idea what he was in for. Um. Chad takes off. He pulls over in a rest area north of Columbus, Ohio, on his way to Indiana, um, tries to get some sleep. Uh, a couple of state highway patrolmen wake him up, want to know what he's doing there. He takes off and outruns them. And that will unfortunately come into play in the trial. 
makes his what then makes his way to his brother's house in northern Indiana. Of course, the FBI is waiting for him. As soon as he gets in his brother's car and, and they go off, the FBI begin to follow. They pull his car over. Chad tries to run into a cornfield. He makes it about five feet. They tackle him um, and they put him under arrest. Chad tells his side of the story. And boom, we have a case at, at Cornell University. And uh, a little while later, I get pulled in. And there we go. So they're both in jail at this point in South Carolina. You've met up with Chad. You did not have any correspondence with Brandon, correct? Correct. No, I was not allowed to talk to Brandon because obviously at that point he had different counsel and he also was pointing the finger at Chad. Chad's pointing the finger at him. So I couldn't have any contact. What I did have was access to his criminal file. And so tell us from this point, how did the trials play out? Did they, were they charged with the same crimes? Did they both plead the same way? What did each of them do individually in their trials? It was, no, it was a little different. Um, essentially, I can't tell you what Brandon's uh, team's you know, approach was um, because I wasn't a part of it. With Chad, we actually did not go to trial. We pled guilty. Um, what we pled guilty to was a federal statute, um, not to the state case. Um, and I know this gets, I know this gets really complicated for people. Um, and I apologize for that, but, um, Chad and Brandon, the reason they were, went to South Carolina first was because they were tried under or charged under a federal law that Bill Clinton had signed into law in the 90s, which basically said that if you carjack someone and the result is death, whether you meant harm to them or not, you are now a candidate for the death penalty. That's a right. federal law. And federal law trumps state law. So even though they were facing homicide charges under state law in South Carolina and West Virginia, federal law always gets the first crack at it. And because they had crossed state lines from West Virginia to South Carolina, the federal government got the first shot at them. And so that's why the trial took place in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, when we came in, we had to explain this to Chad. And Chad, even after his sentencing, did not understand it. I don't think he still understands it. We tried to explain to him that we had no choice but to plead guilty because under the law, the way it's written, he was clearly guilty. He carjacked, he participated in a carjack with Samantha Burns and Alice Donovan. That is incontrovertible. There's, there's no debating that. They are both presumed dead. There's no debating that. We have since found the remains of Alice Donovan. We know she died. So therefore, he is guilty. What we did was plead guilty, and then what happens in a death penalty case is there are two phases to it. The first phase is the guilt or innocence phase. If you plead guilty, you automatically go to the penalty phase. The penalty phase is, do you face life imprisonment or death? That's the only question right. before the jury. So with Chad, the only question was the death penalty or life imprisonment. That's it. 
So the reason why the case did not get a lot of media was there was no arguing about whether or not he participated in a carjacking that resulted in death for Samantha Burns and Alice Donovan. That we were not contesting. The question was whether he deserved the death penalty or life imprisonment. And we were arguing life imprisonment because, one, we argued that he, you, if nothing else, you don't know who committed the murder. It's 50-50. You don't know who right. actually did it. Two, um, Chad Falks is barely above being mentally challenged. He has fetal alcohol syndrome, and he has no history of violence. And he has fully cooperated with the authorities. When the FBI said, hey, will you go out and help us try to find the body? He said, sure. And he did it. When they said, will you undergo a lie detector test? He said, sure. And by the way, he passed it. Wow. Um, Brandon Basham refused to take a lie detector test. Now, the problem with that is the jury never heard that Chad Falks passed a lie detector test because lie detector tests are not admissible in court. Right. And they never heard that Brandon Basham refused to take one. Right. Brandon Basham, he went to trial, correct? Yeah, Brandon Basham, I can't remember if he went to trial right to the penalty phase because at the time I was totally wrapped up in Chad's case. I, I wasn't paying any attention to Brandon at the time. I was completely all in on trying to help Chad. So I don't remember if Brandon went through uh, the trial phase and then the penalty phase um, or went right to the penalty phase as well. If it, it, I have a memory that he went to the penalty phase cor directly as well because I think his lawyers advised him exactly what we did, which is there's no arguing this. I mean, right. under federal statute, the state laws are something else. That, you know, but under federal statute, you know, essentially you're screwed. There, there's no getting out of this. And right. so... What we need to do is go right to the penalty phase and basically beg for your life. Now, while all this is going on, um, and, and my job at the time varied depending on kind of what was going on, um, a buddy a, a, of mine that I went to law school with, we helped research what would be the opening statement um, for several weeks. Um, but before that, one of the things that um, I did for several weeks was search for the body of Samantha Burns. I spent several, several weeks in West Virginia, um, traipsing through the woods, trying to find the body of Samantha Burns. And we really wanted to find the body of Samantha Burns. What we believed at the time was that one, Brandon Basham committed the murder. Two, that in all likelihood, given his MO, that Brandon Basham sexually assaulted anyone he came into contact with, that he could get away with. And so we believed if we could find Samantha Burns's body, we wanted to find it for several reasons. Um, one was we believed that if we found it, that the body would produce DNA evidence that would exonerate Chad and show that Brandon was the real killer. So re we really wanted to find the bodies. I was looking for Samantha Burns in West Virginia. A couple of other law students were looking for Alice Donovan in South Carolina. And I can't tell you how many hours I spent walking along, you know, uh, in the woods next to waterways looking for anything. 
I can tell you, even though I'd worked in a funeral home and I'd been a preacher's kid, you know, that is not what I wanted to do. Um, right. And I, I remember asking one of my professors, Sherry Johnson, I said, what do I do if I find it? And she said, you call me, I call the police. I said, we're calling the police. She said, absolutely, we're calling the police because we wanted to find the body. And I know that the Burns family over the years has online asked me to identify where the body is. I had a member of law enforcement that I was interviewing at the time. I won't name names, although it's a prominent name in Huntington, West Virginia. Tell me, said, hey, why don't you skip all this attorney-client privilege crap and just tell me where the body is? I could have a few guesses as to who that is, and they're probably no longer of service to the city, but I could see that happening. Yeah, and I, I just looked at him. I said, sir, I said, if I knew, I, you know, I promise you, because I, I, I said, you know, I, if I knew, we'd probably tell you. And I remember calling my professor after I walked out. I said, this guy just asked me. And she said, well, just tell him. If we knew, we'd tell him. We don't know. We're trying to find it. And, you know, we looked down the big Sandy. We looked down, you know, all along the Ohio River. We looked down. We looked everywhere. We searched forever. I had this one theory that, well, Chad's ex-wife lived over by the big Sandy in this place. And there's a, there's a boat dock over there. And there's a dumpster over there. And he remembers a dumpster. So I should be search over there. And I spent eight hours searching over there. And I never could find anything. And then finally, I got a hunch because back in the 90s, uh, before I went to law school, I worked for a congressman. And I worked on Capitol Hill and I worked with the Army Corps of Engineers. And I was familiar with what the Army Corps of Engineers did on the Ohio River. And I began to suspect something. So I went looking for when the the Corps of Engineers had set up, every once in a while what they do is they set up these basically fences across the Ohio River that chops everything up. Right. And the reason is to get rid of debris and anything that would clog the river and so forth. And so I looked, and lo and behold, about that time, they had set up something in southern Ohio down the river. Wow. And I went back to that spot where that seafood restaurant was, and I began looking down and seeing how easy it would be for Brandon Basham to take Miss Burns and put her in the Ohio River. And it would have been very easy. I do believe um, my theory, and with everything I've seen, even given Chad's fuzzy memory, is that I believe they placed Miss Burns, Brandon Basham placed Miss Burns in the Ohio River, and that unfortunately we'll never find her. And that's also hard to hear because <laughs> of, you know, for the past 17 years, that's, well, I guess for the past 15 years, since Brandon and Chad were charged and sentenced, the only thing they've wanted, the Burns family and you know, our community have wanted closure. Sure. And that's a very viable explanation um, as to what happened. I don't think as long as this case has been covered by local media, that's never been a theory that I've heard from anyone else. I've heard the guy in Dot River. I've heard Beach Fork Lake. 
you know, several different places and, and the maps that are another topic that, that we'll get into in a few minutes, but it would seem very viable that if that's where they put her, I mean, obviously she'll never be found. She was gone within, you know, a day or two days. If, if you didn't know to look there, there's no chance. Yeah. And it's, you know, I remember I wrote an article about how I'm, and look, I'm, I was raised in a very conservative Christian home. And even though I was a rebellious preacher's kid who ran off to Hollywood and all that kind of stuff, I was always pro-death penalty. And I began to question that after this case. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later if you want, but I would never, ever, ever deny a family closure if they can get it. Right. And You know, we wanted every single member of Chad Falk's defense team wanted to find Samantha Burns. We wanted to. And we were never going to hide that ever. Even if, you know, even if for some reason, and we wouldn't know at the time, that it would have implicated Chad, which I don't believe it would have. We would have reported it to police. We would never have hidden that fact, ever. Right. Um, and so, and Chad has fully cooperated with the FBI to the point where eventually they did find the remains of Alice Donovan. You know, it, it's a shame that it took so long. But look, the FBI has searched and searched and searched. Our whole defense team searched and searched and searched. We searched every inch of every Anywhere within 30 miles of Huntington, West Virginia, if it was near water, we searched it. The FBI did as well. I don't see any other explanation. So the, lo- the remains of Alice Donovan were located quite some time after the crimes. The guys had already been charged and sentenced to death at that point. Let's talk about the maps that led the authorities in South Carolina to Alice Donovan's body and some of the other maps that I've heard that Chad Falks drew in an attempt to find Samantha Burns' body. So he first he draws this map and leads the South Carolina authorities to Alice Donovan's body. Did you ever see that map or did he ever recount to you how those maps came about? He recount well. He recounted by memory to me what he said. You know, Matt, I remember. Understand that, especially in South Carolina, um, he's unfamiliar with the territory. Um, two, he's driving in a kind of panic mode. He's not focused on anything other than is anybody following me. Um, he said. So I just remember seeing a dirt road. I remember seeing trees. I remember seeing a cemetery somewhere. And he said, that's what I remember. And I pulled in there. All he wanted to do was, according to Chad, was to get Miss Donovan out of the car, have Brandon tie her up and get out of there. And so he was not thinking clearly. Um, Even if he hadn't been on drugs, he was not thinking clearly. He was in panic mode. It's my understanding following the case over the years that for him to put those maps together, required a lot of just driving around with the FBI 
and trying to remember, do I remember that that night? Do I remember that that night? And trying to put that together slowly. That's one of the reasons why it took so long to find uh, Miss Donovan's remains was because, first of all, he had no idea where he was at. And second of all, he just, you know, he was in panic mode. Third, he was under the influence of drugs. And even with the Samantha Burns case, you know, being under, you know, being under the influence of meth, he just, his memory is very fuzzy. So you think maybe some of it was just a little bit of him riding around with the FBI and a little bit of luck that they hit on the right place? Yes. Otherwise, it wouldn't have taken that much time because I, I, I will tell you that because we were in constant communication with the U.S. Attorney's Office out of South Carolina, they were scouring every inch that they could think of. So it, it really was just kind of a random spot or otherwise they would not have taken that much time. Now, I, I have read since that one of, uh, one of the reasons also that it, it took so long to find Miss Donovan's body was there was a lot of construction going on nearby, uh, which does affect things. Right. Apparently, he did the same thing with Samantha Burns here, right. because I know that there were times that he came to West Virginia with the FBI and they attempted to search some of these properties because one of those properties at the time actually belonged to my father. Right. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. Here's the problem. The first time that I went to the area where the seafood restaurant used to be and the dumpster was still there and I pulled in and I got out and I walked into the wooded area um, to the east of the restaurant. As soon as I walked over kind of the shoal and came down, I looked and saw a creek leading directly into the Ohio River. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, no, um, if it happened down here, she's in the Ohio River. And if she's in the Ohio River, we'll never find her. Uh, now, I jumped over the creek and searched the other. I, I probably walked, I don't know, a mile and a half, two miles. I, I don't remember. I, I just kept walking. And I searched every inch of that area. I even thought, well, maybe he's wrong. Maybe it's the other side. So I went to the other side and I checked that side um, and I didn't find a thing. Not a thing. Um, I do remember seeing a cheap Marshall jacket um, that I found, but it wasn't. It was obviously not for Samantha Burns. It was obviously a, a man's jacket. It was, it was like extra large male. And I didn't find anything else. Nothing. Well, the problem with that area is that unfortunately, uh, since the drug problem has become so rampant in Huntington, that area in the past 10 to 12 years probably has become a hotspot for homeless and the drug addicted. And so on any given day, you can walk the banks of the Ohio River on the Huntington side and find somebody or the remnants of a camp down. I mean, there have been times that, that they have literally had to, they have to run these people off yeah, um, because they just set up these makeshift camps on the river. And so uh, you could find any number of things down there. It's, it would not be, it would not be abnormal, yeah. unfortunately. But there was, you know, remember this also, even though I, I didn't encounter that when I was there, but remember, this is, you know, this is 16 years ago. Um, 
before the drug problem was as rampant. It was there, but not as rampant as it, as it is today. Right. Because um, I never encountered a single homeless person while I was searching that area. But remember, there was a reward. Right. Um, so if people were doing that, there's another layer to that, which is if somebody found the body, they would have reported it. True. Yeah, absolutely. Because those reward posters were everywhere at that time. I mean, everywhere I went, they were there. They were at, you know, at Marshall University. They were in downtown. They were in, you know, they were in West Hamlin. They were everywhere. Right. And so um, somebody would have reported the body. Um, I, I can't think of any, anything, any other explanation than she was put in the Ohio River, that Brandon Bashan put her in the Ohio River. I, I really believe that. I believe, unfortunately, she'll, her body will never be recovered. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope for, you know, there's always that. I have a buddy who was a cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles for 20 odd years, Jay Warner Wallace. And, you know, he likes to say everything is possible, but not everything is probable. Right. And I've talked to him about this case and he said, well, it's possible they'll find the body. It's not probable. Right. You know, Matt, I, I think I'm pretty sure I know the place you're talking about. I, you know, that, that's a pretty good theory because, you know, if you go down to this area and there's, there's, it's just a wooded area, but yeah, you would have found, you would have found something. Yeah. But I, I just want to, it's not densely wooded, right? I mean, you've yeah. right. seen it. Yeah. yeah. You know, in doing the research for this case, I think it, I think it was important for Annie and I to go kind of look at some of the places that were mentioned you know, in the case file and everything. And so we did that. But I, I want to touch on something. You know, you brought up the simple fact that Chad had said that Brandon told him all these things. What, what The thing that bothers me the most is when we talk about Alice Donovan yeah. was how uh, Chad, you know, reluctantly admitted that he sexually assaulted Alice Donovan. Right. Because Brandon had said to him, you're in, you're in this with me. Do you think it's possible that maybe he knew had some idea where Alice actually was because he was present when Brandon, you know, killed her, murdered her because of the same kind of thing, the scenario that he said, you're in, you're, you're in this with me. I, he had a general idea, but he, he just didn't know the area. I mean, it's, you know, um, I spent, after I left this case, I spent five years as a corporate attorney and, and, Charleston, West Virginia, and then I spent eight years as a nonprofit attorney traveling all over the United States. And I will tell you this, back in the early days when I was traveling all over the United States, if I didn't have a GPS, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I, you know, I tell my wife, um, you know, my wife loves New York City. I used to go to New York City four times a year for eight years. But if you asked me to navigate you through New York City, you know, without my old Garmin or without Waze, I couldn't do it. Right. Because it's just not, it's not my territory. It's not something I navigate every single day. And so now you're talking about a territory that somebody with an IQ in the 70s has never navigated. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Matt, did you ever have the opportunity to sit down with... Samantha's parents and discuss part of the case with them? I have not, um, and I would, but 
the problem was for so many years, it was, a, you know, it's an ongoing case. Now, in some ways, it's still an ongoing case, even though Chad has asked, has made a request several times for his execution date to go ahead and be, you know, uh, just put it up. He's asked, asked for it to be expedited. So um, I, I would do that. I, I have seen them. When he came in for um, to Huntington, West Virginia, I was practicing law in Charleston. And he came to Huntington uh, to face the judge for the Burns case on the state charge. I was there for that. Um, and, his, and Samantha's family was there. Now, they didn't recognize me. They didn't know who I was. They saw me talking to Chad, but they had no idea who I was. But, you know, I saw them sitting there crying, and some of them were red-faced and teeming. And, you know, I have nothing but sympathy for them. I have absolutely nothing but sympathy for them. I mean, God bless their hearts. They've right. been through hell, just through hell. After so many years, and the years that you spent on this case, and the years thereafter, when you look back at Chad and Brandon individually, and know that they are both sitting on death row in Indiana for the same crimes, do you feel like Chad and Brandon deserved the same punishment in this case? No, absolutely not. I believe that even though I'm not a huge fan of the death penalty, um, because of the errors that can be made in that, like I believe when Chad is put to death, that's going to be an error. Um, I, be I believe that Brandon Basham, under our current law system, under the statutes, Brandon Basham deserves death. And I believe Chad Falk deserves life imprisonment. And I say that, and I've said that to Chad. When Chad and I talked, you know, Chad would say, you know, when can I get out of here? I didn't, I didn't kill anybody. I said, Chad, you're never getting out of there. And he said, what do you mean? I said, Chad, I said, you committed the crime. You, you, you know, under the federal law, whether the law is right or not, under the federal law, you know, you at least deserve life imprisonment. I said, you know, Chad, I said, you... You participated in this. And I understand. He said, well, I didn't want to. He had a gun. I said, I get that. I completely get that. I said, but the simple fact is, you were a part, minor or major, you were a part of ruining the lives of two families. You deserve to be in prison for the rest of your life. And I've told him, I said, now, buddy, I said, do something with it. I said, you're in prison. And I know it sucks. But that doesn't mean your life is over. Do something with it. You know, get education. Do, do, you know, try to do something. Try to help people. Try to do, you know, try to do something. And the, one of the worst phone calls I've ever had in my life was shortly after I passed the bar in West Virginia. He called me. Called me collect from prison in Indiana. Chad did. And... Uh, we talked for a few minutes, and he said, Matt, are they going to kill me? And I said, Chad, I hope not. But I think he's gotten to the point where he's lost all hope. And uh, now the phone call that I really don't want to get is the day Chad calls me and asks me if I'll come to his execution. And, and what, what would your answer be? Would you go? I have to. I don't have a choice. 
But do you, uh, do you think you would be the only one who showed up for his ex execution? No. No. Uh, my former professors would be there. They always go. If they're asked, they always go. And uh, my one of my professors told me one of the clients they represented was being strapped into the chair for lethal injection. And he looked up at his executioner and said, I don't blame you for doing this. Don't, don't blame yourself. It's okay. And the guy said, thank you. Matt, is there any part of you that ever regrets being a part of this case or choosing the path that you chose? You know, everybody, everybody has a journey. And this was part of your journey. And it's very apparent that this changed you. This changed the way that you looked at practicing law. This changed the way you looked at life and death. Do you ever regret that this is how it happened? No, because it was a, it was a, a wake-up call. Um, you know, I, I went to New York to law school. I had a full ride to the University of Kentucky Law School. I had a full ride to Ohio State University. I ended up paying, you know, basically a house payment to, right. to go to Cornell because I wanted to be a Manhattan DA. I wanted, you know, I, I grew up watching Law and Order and everything else. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be an assistant Manhattan prosecutor. And so that's why I went there. And uh, the way you become a Manhattan DA is pretty complicated. There's like a seven interview process, seven stages that you have to go through. And I cleared six of the seven stages. My last interview was with the uh, New York DA. And that's basically a kind of congratulatory meeting. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to do it because I don't at that time, New York still had the death penalty and, uh, or was trying to bring back the death penalty. And I said, no, I said, I'm not doing this. I said, I can't, I can't do it. And so I took a last minute job doing, uh, defense cases in Charleston, West Virginia. And, uh, I did that for five years and then I did nonprofit law, first amendment stuff for eight years. And, uh, uh, and then I went back into full-time ministry, which is what I do, what I do now. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the death penalty should be taken off the table. I'm, I'm, I'm not there, but I definitely think we need to look at it because there are definitely flaws in the system because Chad Fox does not deserve to die. Spend the le rest of his life in prison? Absolutely. Um, die? No. I don't think he should die. And... Uh, I, when I think about this case, I just, I think about how many more are there because one of the things we did, because the jury came back in four hours to give Chad death. And I remember watching the newscast where my professor, John Bloom, who'd handled his case and John's brilliant attorney graduated with honors from Yale Law School, professor at Cornell. And I was watching John and he was nearly in tears. And he said, I guess we just didn't do a good enough job. And I remember feeling like absolute crap because I thought, well, then I didn't do a good enough job. 
And but then it was so disturbing that it came back so quickly that we asked the judge to poll the jury. Now, what that means is you have to ask the judge to ask the jury, why did you come to this decision? And it's the judge can grant it or, or he can't. It's up to him. And usually the judge only grants it if he, shocked, he or she is shocked as well. And so they granted it. And if memory serves, basically one person either said during that or later to the press, I can't remember which because it's just been too long. One of the jurors said, basically, I don't know which one of them did it, but they're both white trash, so they both should die. Wow. And I remember thinking, man, if that's the system, something's got to change. Have you ever, since this is all kind of said and done and you stepped away with it, have you spoken with your former professors about it, you know, since, since they were sentenced? Have you ever spoken with them? Do they, do they ever have any comments to make about it? I haven't spoken about the case so much. Um, when I saw Professor Bloom on TV and I, I saw his, the tears welling up in his eyes, I just didn't want to broach it. I just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to reopen an old wound. Um, so we've spoken since um, over the years, um, exchanged emails here and there, but no, we haven't. We haven't spoken about, about the case. They're still doing it. I mean, they're still doing death penalty cases. They haven't lost the heart for it. Um, in fact, Professor Johnson emailed me a while back and said that she had just um, argued before the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. And she asked me, she's a Christian, and she asked me to pray for it. And I said I would. And so that's, that's the last we talked. At the end of the day, at the end of all of this, if, if, if or when all is said and done with this case, what would you hope would be the ending? What's the best possible ending to this case, in your opinion? One, that I'm wrong about Samantha Burns and they find her body and the, and the family gets that. Two, that, and the whole reason I'm talking about this is that Somehow, some way, Chad's sentence is commuted to life imprisonment. And that Chad, I haven't spoken to Chad in a long time because at some point he got new counsel and I wasn't allowed. Um, I've spoken to his new counsel, but I'm not, I, for a while, I wasn't allowed to speak to him. But I hope that his sentence is commuted and then I get to talk to him and, and try to convince him that no matter where you're at, there's there's a life. I mean, there are people out there who are paraplegics who are still doing great things. You know, uh, for years, my church hosted Johnny and Friends, um, which is basically a camp for kids who are paraplegics, who we just treat them like royalty for a week. Um, and they have a great time. And that was all made possible by this woman who's a paraplegic. Okay, you're in prison, but you can still walk, you can still move, you can still talk, you can still read, you can still talk to people, you can still do things for people, for your fellow inmates. You can try to help somebody and try to talk Chad into living the life that he's had and accepting the consequences for what he's done. Matt Rawlings, I 
and Brendan Shea appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, basically to tell your side of the story. And I think it's important that you hear this side of it because it brings forth a lot of information that most people wouldn't know. And again, it shows another side of the human factor in this case because you realize just how many people have been affected by this tragedy, by Samantha's murder, by Alice Donovan's murder. And so I appreciate the fact that you have been very candid with us. Do you have any other thoughts before we close? No, I just, I appreciate you guys um, doing this. And I just hope, you know, having, you know, done these cases, even in, in corporate cases and First Amendment cases, never rush to judgment when you hear something on TV, when you hear a 30-second blurb on TV. You know, there's always another side to the story. There's always something more going on. Just don't rush to judgment. We live in a society, thanks to Twitter and Facebook and everything else, where people just immediately pounce without thinking. And just take a moment and think about the fact that you're always hearing an opinion. Even now, it's just, it, in large cases, my opinion, but you're hearing an opinion and just evaluate it before you rush to judgment. That was well said. And yeah, like Andy said, thank you so much for doing this. It was very, it was a very kind of powerful story because, yeah, we're hearing it from a different side that pe- most people don't, don't think to hear it from. So thank you. You're very welcome, guys. Appreciate it. So listening back on that again, Annie, what did you think? It doesn't get any easier anytime you listen to it. I don't know how many times I've replayed that interview and taken down notes and, you know, teared up just thinking about some of the things that Matt relayed, some of those details that were never released to news media, some of the things that were so intimate to Matt that I felt he maybe even hesitated at some points to tell us these things because he was afraid that it would upset me as someone who, you know, wholeheartedly feels that this case, um, you know, somebody who wanted to find the remains of Samantha so badly I appreciate so much Matt's honesty with us, his ability to lay these details out for us, how disturbing they may have been, but to really give us an insight of what it was like to be an internal part of that investigation and to know not only how it affected him then, but completely altered the course of his life, you know, it ends up, he leaves the practice of law and it all goes back to this case with Chad Falks that he could never really shake and his feelings about capital punishment. And although our opinions may differ a little, I respect Matt entirely and I'm so grateful that he was willing to talk with us and, and share his experience with us. Uh, it, it put an entirely new perspective on this case that I don't think we could have ever heard from anyone except one of his attorneys. 
And I think it's important to know all the details. It's important to know these things that aren't always reported on because when you're on the inside, you see the actual facts of what's going on. Media is only given so many things that they report on. And I think it was important, as gruesome as some of these, you know, facts may have been, like it's important to understand what happened to these two women and uh, what they went through in their last moments of life. You know, appreciate Matt telling us and you can and you can tell you hear it in the interview he gets emotional because it was an emotional thing for all parties involved thanks again to matt rawling for for taking the time and telling us this story because it was it was a vital part of this uh investigation i do believe i want to thank everybody again for tuning into this episode of serial spirits the podcast we will be back again on paranormal warehouse next week with another serial snippet uh so tune in look for that And uh, as we said in the first episode, we are now available on iTunes and uh, we are streaming from a new platform, Paranormal Warehouse as well. So check that out. Go to ParanormalWarehouse.com and check out all the great shows they have and you will not be disappointed. I promise you that. Shay will be back in two weeks with the third part of our Missing Samantha Burns series. And oh boy, this episode gets interesting because we are going to read to you the letters that Chad Folks wrote to me from Death Row in Terre Haute, Indiana. Guys, stay tuned for that one. You do not want to miss that. Thank you for tuning in to Serial Spirits, the podcast. You can check us out on www.paranormalwarehouse.com. We're available on iTunes at Serial Spirits Podcast, SoundCloud at Serial Spirits Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Serial Spirits, on Instagram, and on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits.